Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. I invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 5. We're studying verse by verse through all of the Gospel of Luke. We're now in chapter 5. Come today to verse 33, and I'm going to read through verse 39. The title of the message is The Incompatibility of the Gospel. And I provided for you a definition of incompatibility. It's the condition of two things being so different in nature as to be incapable of coexisting. And I hope you'll see after we read the text, those two things are the gospel of Jesus Christ and Pharisaical legalism. And so we come today to read verse 33, Luke 5. And they said to him, the disciples of John often fast and offer prayers. The disciples of the Pharisees also do the same. But yours, eat and drink. Jesus said to them, you cannot make the attendance of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them that they will fast in those days. And he was also telling them a parable. No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, he will both tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled out and the skins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine wishes for new, for he says the old is good enough. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. You remember here in chapter 5, Jesus had called one of his disciples, a man by the name of Levi, or Matthew as we know him. Matthew, before he was saved, was a tax collector, the most hated of the classes of people in Jewish life. He was viewed as a traitor. He was viewed as an outcast from the synagogue. And when Matthew met Jesus, he was so overjoyed, he threw a party for all of his friends who were also sinners and tax collectors. And Jesus came to that party as the guest of honor. And many of the religious crowd saw Jesus eating and fellowshipping with these men of bad reputation, and they were scandalized by that. And rather than going to Jesus directly, Scripture says they began to grumble, murmur, we saw last week, to his disciples. And so here's another episode of that, but something very surprising. To the Pharisees, who you already have been introduced to, this is the sect of conservative religious people who viewed themselves as the keeper of the Old Testament law, the interpreters of the Old Testament law. And to the Old Testament law, they had added all sorts of rules and regulations and traditions. To the point that the common man was so burdened down and weighted down by it all, he just wanted to give up. And Jesus says, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Because uh, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so people flocked to Jesus because it was something new and something different. And the Pharisees, of course, didn't like that because they liked having control over the people. They liked being the ones that the people came to with their questions about the law. And so they were very upset. But that's a group we're not surprised to hear complaining about Jesus. The other group is called the disciples of John the Baptist. Remember, John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus, was the forerunner of Christ. And he was out in the wilderness before Jesus started his earthly miracle, preaching a message of repentance and faith, baptism. And people were flocking to hear this 
prophet out in the wilderness. And he had his own disciples, of whom, by the way, Andrew and James and John first were disciples of John the Baptist before they began to follow Jesus. And, and both of them joined together seemingly, and their complaint against Jesus is that we fast, we abstain from food on certain days, but, but you and your disciples eat and drink. Now, if you remember anything about John the Baptist, he lived a very ascetic lifestyle. His garment was of camel's hair. He ate locusts and wild honey. But, but to have the disciples of John and the Pharisees join together against Jesus is shocking. If you remember an episode in Matthew chapter 3, just listen to it. Now, now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and leather around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. And Jerusalem went coming out to him in all Judea and all the districts around the Jordan. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. But when many of the Pharisees and Sadducees came for baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, <laughs> who warned you to flee the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Do not suppose you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. John the Baptist called the Pharisees a brood of vipers, a bunch of snakes. And yet here we have them seemingly commiserating together to join forces to attack Jesus. I think that's a great reminder that if we're not very careful, even very sincere people who love the Lord can enter into the sin of legalism. And that's exactly what Jesus is addressing here in Luke chapter 5. And he uses three word pictures to show that the gospel that he brought is incompatible, incapable of coexistence with the works-based religious legalism of the Judaism of his day. So the first thing we see here is fasting and celebrating. That is fasting and praying versus eating and drinking. In the Old Testament, there was only one prescribed fast, and that was the Day of Atonement. You remember once a year that the people would gather together and the high priest would slaughter a spotless animal, one that had no deficiency in any way, and they would take the blood of that spotless animal and he would sprinkle it in the Holy of Holies. Remember the Holy of Holies was separated by a great thick curtain signifying the presence of God. And in it was the Ark of the Covenant. And on top of the, of the covenant was what's called the mercy seat. And that blood was sprinkled upon the mercy seat. And it was a sign that God would overlook the sins of the nation for one more year. But of course it had to be repeated every year because people kept on sinning, right? Of course all of those sacrifices were simply metaphors. They were foreshadowing of the true Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus, who would die on the cross. And the Bible calls him the once for all sacrifice for sins, right? Never having to be repeated. And so when Jesus died on the cross, you recall that the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple was torn from the top to the bottom, showing that God did it. God was saying there's no longer a need for the Day of Atonement because atonement has come in the person of Jesus. And there's no longer a need for a high priest because Jesus not only is the sacrifice, he's the priest. And so here we have the Day of Atonement, when people reflected upon their sinfulness and the high cost of their sin and the blood that was necessary to cleanse their sin, it was right and appropriate on that day that God says to proclaim a fast. But all the other fasts of the Old Testament were voluntary in nature. When a person had a 
particularly important decision to make or a task given to them by God. They would set aside times of prayer and fasting as we often call you to do here today. But it's absolutely voluntary. What's my point? Well, the Pharisees apparently had taken that one day of the year that God said to fast and they had multiplied it by over a hundred. Twice a week they were fasting. Twice a week. Now multiply that by 52 weeks and we're now over a hundred days a year where they're fasting. The point was they had taken what God said you may and they had changed it to you must. And if you didn't fast the way they did they looked down upon you and thought of you as less than spiritually speaking. And so they come to Jesus and say, look at us. <laughs> we fast, but your disciples, they're, they're living it up. You're eating and drinking. What, what gives here? And so it's a, a great reminder to avoid the sin of, of, of legalism. So fasting and celebrating are two things that are in, incompatible. Jesus compared it to someone who goes to a wedding and is sad. You don't go to a wedding and behave like you do when you go to a funeral. I hope. And so, so they're, they're two very different things. Now the scripture says that there's a time for everything, right? Remember that in the book of Ecclesiastes, a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance. No, it was not the birds who first said that, folks. It was uh, the old time. The first crowd didn't get that. So you've got, you've got this amazing variety of ages in our church. Half of you don't know who the birds are, and half of you don't know what Ecclesiastes is. And so I'm caught right in the middle here. I may just strike that whole thing from the sermon. <laughs> but there is a time of things that are appropriate and things that are, that are not. And Jesus said, no matter what you do, though, some people are going to accuse you of wrongdoing. Haven't you found that to be true? No matter what you do or what attitude you take, someone is going to find fault in it. Matthew 11 says this, Jesus is speaking. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to the other children and say, we played the, fruit, the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and you say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard. Friend of tax collectors. You see his point? So, so John the Baptist lived out in the wilderness. He never went to a party in his life. And they said, that guy's crazy. Look at him. Never goes to a party. And then Jesus comes along and he goes to the parties he's invited to. And they say, oh, he's a, he's a glutton. He's a partier. Don't have anything to do. See, you, you can't satisfy some people. I remember I learned this lesson at uh, the age of 23 when I went to pastor my first church out in rural Mississippi. Some wonderful, wonderful people. But before I arrived there, the church had sacrificially given and accrued and saved enough money to build a brand new building, debt free. And all they needed was a pastor to kind of help lead out in this thing. And they already had the blueprints printed and everything. It had to come to the church for a final vote. We've got the money in the bank. We have a need for the building. Let's just vote and, and start it. And we went to the vote and the vote came back 28 to 1. And everybody in the church knew who the one was, right? Because there was a man in our community that made it known that he was going to vote no to whatever came before the floor of the church just so it could not pass with a 100% vote. He was against everything. Well, there are people like that. No matter what you do, they're, they're going to be against it. They're going to have opposition. And 
So Jesus didn't waste his time trying to convince those people who were predetermined to be against him. He spent his time with those people who knew they were sinners and needed a savior. See, the point is that the Jews had been waiting hundreds of years for a Messiah. For centuries they had been saying, there's going to come a Savior one day, and now he's there. You'd think they, if there ever was a time for partying, it was then, right? Of celebration and rejoicing. And, and so, so Jesus says, look, my disciples aren't fasting because the bridegroom is here. Now, who's the bridegroom? That's Jesus, right? And the old covenant... The bride was Israel, and in the New Covenant, the bride is who? It's the church. And so he says, there will come a day when the bridegroom is taken away that the bride will fast out of a broken heart, right? Not out of a prescription. And so I called you a couple of weeks ago to join me if the Lord would lead you to fast one day a week for our nation, for revival, for the lost in our community, and I hope some of you are, are participating in that. But that's strictly voluntary as the Lord would lead you and give you the health to do that. Because in one sense, the bridegroom has been taken away, right? That's why Jesus, as we celebrated last week the Lord's Supper, he gathered them the Lord's Supper, and they thought it was to celebrate Passover, and it was. But Jesus says, I have come to start something new. And he instituted then the Lord's Supper. And he said, I will not drink it new with you again until I drink it new with you in my, with my Father in heaven, right? He was about to be taken away from them, very literally. The Roman soldiers were on their way to arrest Jesus there in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so then it was appropriate that they fast. And they did, of course. And we do today, looking for the second coming of the Lord Jesus. Now there's a second picture here, not only fasting and eating, but old cloth and new garments. Old cloth and new garments are incompatible. Here's the parable. Look at verse 36. And he was also telling them a parable. You know a parable is a story used as a metaphor to compare two things for a spiritual purpose. And he was telling them a parable. No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise he will tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. Now, I don't know if kids today can relate to this, but I was the youngest in my family, and I was the youngest grandchild on both sides, which means I never had any new clothes. I wore clothes that were padded. Now, that isn't true, but a lot of my clothes other people had owned first. And by the time they got to me, they sometimes needed repairs. And by the time I got through with on the playground playing tackle football, they really needed repairs, Okay. And so I didn't have a pair of jeans that didn't have a hole in the knee. Now today I could sell those at a profit. That's in style. <laughs> but in those days it was kind of shameful to go around with holes in your pants. And so my mother would put patches on. If you saw a picture of me from 5 to 15, I guarantee you I had patches on my knees. But Jesus wasn't telling a story about sewing. Just a very common thing that everyone would know. If you had a tear in an old garment... You wouldn't take your best brand new garment and cut a hole out of it and sew it on the old garment, right? How foolish. For, for two reasons. One, you'd ruin the new garment. And for two, that old garment has been washed many times and had shrunk. And if you put a brand new piece of cloth on there and you wash it, the new garment's going to shrink and tear away from the old and the hole's going to be worse than when you started. What's his point? 
He's saying that he came to bring something brand new and different in the world and how foolish it would be to take that which was brand new and different and try to put on top of it that old way of pharisaical legalism. Here's some things that Jesus said were incompatible. Remember, Jesus came to bring the new covenant, the covenant of grace. And he says that grace is incompatible with legalism. They cannot exist in the same place. You cannot have a spirit of graciousness, of forgiveness to other people and live in legalism. Now, I'm talking to some of you today, including myself, who are recovering legalists, right? We grew up in households where there was a lot of thou shalt nots, right? And so when we see people behaving in ways that not exactly the way we were growing up, our instinct is to say, that's a sin. And then we look to the Bible to prove it. <laughs> and if we can't find it, we still say it's a sin, right? Well, what the, the essence of legalism is calling something a sin that God says is not or is silent on, right? And that's what the, the Pharisees were great at. They would take some basic biblical truth, like remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Can we agree that's in the Bible? And, and to that, they would add all sorts of restrictions and limitations. Like you can't eat a chicken's egg laid on the Sabbath because the, the hen had to work, right? And, and so it just became a burden to the people. That's why Jesus had to come along and say, look, the Sabbath was made for man, not, not man for the Sabbath. God gave man a day of rest for his benefit and you've made it a burden to him. And the Pharisees didn't understand that's what they were doing. See, here's the real problem with Pharisees. It's not that they're religiously conservative. Many of us are. All of us, I think, would, would fall into that category. It's the fact that they gave the outward appearance of loving God because of these boxes they checked off, and yet their heart had never been changed. Je Jesus said, you, you have a zeal, but your heart is far from me. That's why King David said in, in the Old Testament, sacrifices God loves are broken and contrite heart, right? That's why the prophet told King Saul to obey is better than sacrifice, to hearken than the, than the fat of rams. It's the heart, the affections that God is after, not just the outward keeping of traditions. So grace is incompatible with legalism and grace is incompatible by the way, with salvation by works. You say, well, well, I came out of a faith tradition that teaches grace plus works, grace plus the sacraments. Jesus is clearly saying the gospel he taught is incompatible with grace plus anything. That's why the, the reformers, thanks be to God, 500 years ago, took back the true gospel and it's the gospel we teach today that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Grace plus nothing. Grace and works are incompatible. They can't exist in the same place. And finally, pride is incompatible with humility. The humility, as we've seen the last few weeks, that is a prerequisite for salvation. You can't come to God with a haughty spirit puffed up, proud of yourself and your achievements and say, oh, by the way, I want to add Jesus to that list of achievements. It doesn't work that way. So Jesus was saying 
that he did not come to be incorporated into what people were already doing. What he's saying is a new day has come. And friends, that is the fundamental mistake that so many in the world today make about Christ and Christianity. They believe that they can add Jesus or they can add Christianity and mix and mingle and fold it in with what they're already doing and thinking and come up with something that they can manage. And by the way, that is called syncretism. It's taking a little dab of this, a little dab of that and mixing it together and coming up with a new religion, but it's not new at all. I think I've told you before about my friend in college who was from India. He grew up in a Hindu tradition. He often would describe the Hindu temples over there in Calcutta and how he would go into the temple to worship and it was so confusing because he turned to his left and there's a crucifix. He turned to his right and there's a star of David. He looked straight ahead and there would be a ten-armed Krishna doll. And people are praying and milling about and, and they've just kind of amalgamated all the religions of the world. The theory being one of them's bound to be right. Okay? And that's the idea a lot of people have about the Bible and about Christ. I'll take a little bit of the philosophy of the world and I'll, I'll take a little bit of this Eastern religion. I'll throw a little Christian speak on top of that and I'll call it my own faith. And friends, that is fundamentally opposite of the way Jesus says you have to come to him. You see, Jesus told some stories, parables again. One was of a pearl of great price. Do you remember this merchant? Been all over the world trading valuables and he comes across this pearl and to his trained eye he knew it was perfect. He had to have it. He sold everything he had so he could get enough to buy that pearl of great price. He told the story of a farmer who was working a field that didn't belong to him and he, he dug up a treasure chest and he went and sold everything he had to buy that field so the treasure would be his. That's what it means to come to faith to Jesus. You find what is supremely valuable and you rid yourself of every other ism and philosophy that would vie for your affection and you give it to the one to whom it is due, the Lord Jesus. And that is what Paul called the great stumbling block of Judaism. They felt because they were Jewish genetically, because they could quote a lot of scripture, because they went to all the ceremonies, because they fasted even when they weren't required to, that they were okay with God. And Jesus said, you're sick and you don't even know it. At least these tax collectors know they need a physician. Reminds me of John chapter three. One of these Pharisees came to Jesus at night, of course, he didn't want anyone to see that he was with Jesus. He came ostensibly to ask him about his teaching. Jesus didn't even bother to listen to his question. He, he stopped him cold and he said, Nicodemus, you must be what? Born again. Do you see the difference? Nicodemus was wanting to know, what can I add to my legalism? What can I do to my religious practice that you could teach me that I could improve? Jesus says Christianity is not the religion of self-improvement. And by the way, anyone that tells you it is, is a false teacher. What did we say last week? Jesus did not come to make bad men good. He came to make dead men live. You have to be born again. 
You have to realize that anything in your path has, in your past has no value when you have to come to him on his terms as a child. That's why Jesus said, I think, unless we come to him with the faith of a child that we can't enter the kingdom of God. A child doesn't try to impress you with his list of credentials. <laughs> he doesn't say, look at all my achievements, look at all my skins on the wall. He doesn't have any. He's just naturally dependent upon others for his every need. And we have to become totally dependent upon Christ for our salvation. He gives one more illustration. New wine and old wine skins. Now, you know, in those days, wine was stored in animal skins that had been sewed together. And if you've ever seen an animal skin that's been tanned and, and then it's left out in the elements, it becomes brittle and dry, right? And it's hard and immalleable. Well, a new skin was different. It was soft and supple. And, and so they would pour the new wine into new skins. So during the fermentation process, when the gases were released, the new skin could expand and not break. And so Jesus said it would be foolish to put new wine into old wine skins because both are going to be ruined, right? Because when, when the gases cause the, the old skins to expand, rather than giving way, they're just going to crack and break. And the receptacle, the skins are going to be broken and ruined, and the wine is going to pour out, and it's going to be ruined. It, it's just another way of illustrating the same truth. That is, that not many wise and not many noble are called, right? Did, did you find it interesting that among the twelve, not one of them is a Pharisee. Not one of them is a religious expert. They're common people, tax collectors, fishermen, religious zealots. And Jesus did not spend much of his time trying to convince the Pharisees to change. He went to those who were desperately sinful and offered forgiveness. Now, that leads to an important question. Does that mean that a legalist can't be saved? Absolutely not. Scripture says, with men things are impossible. With God, all things are possible, right? Remember I said some in this room are recovering legalists. We give testimony to the fact that legalists can be saved. In fact, the Bible gives one at least great example of that. I said none of the twelve were Pharisees, but there was an apostle who was a Pharisee. His name was Paul. And God was pleased to write a great portion of the New Testament through his pen. But before Paul could be saved... He had to realize that his being a Pharisee was not enough. See, there was a time in Paul's life where he had a pretty good resume. And if someone ever questioned him about uh, anything in life, he'd pull out his resume and begin to quote it. Well, my name is Paul. I'm a Pharisee of the Pharisees, that is, second generation. I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I'm Jewish. So Jewish that I know the very tribe I'm from, the tribe of Benjamin as touching the law blameless. He says, I am meticulous in my keeping of the traditions and the Old Testament law. And that's what he prided himself. In fact, he felt like he was doing God a great favor. He was zealous for the law. In fact, so zealous when he heard about this little group of people called the Christians, it made him angry. Because he viewed them as kind of a, a sect of Judaism that had gone off the rails and become licentious. And he viewed it his role to get them back in line. And so he got papers and he was going to go to Damascus and round out some of these Christians. And along the way he ran into the risen Lord, didn't he? Jesus came to him in his Shekinah glory. 
And he said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It's hard for you to kick against the goats. He's a, a man who thought he was on God's side, but he realized all of his works-based righteousness was incompatible with the holiness of God. Because compared to other people, yes, Paul might look good and pristine and pure, but when he was standing next to the Shekinah glory of true holiness, he instantly saw his own guilt and sin. And from that day forward, he never once, I don't think, brought out his resume to prove his goodness. He brought out his resume so he could say, now that I know Jesus, this thing is worthless. It's no more valuable than filthy rags or refuge or garbage or manure. Didn't have any place in my life because he was trusting in the finished work of Christ on the cross on his behalf. What about you, friend? What did you come in here today trusting in? Was it the fact that you come to church three out of four Sundays or maybe your second, third, fourth generation Baptist or maybe you don't cuss or drink or do some of those things that a lot of your neighbors do? Maybe you see what's going on in other parts of the country on your television and you shake your head in disgust and you forget that the real problem there is not the lack of morality. The real problem in people's heart is the lack of Jesus. What about you? Maybe there are some folks here today that are recovering legalists and you need God's help to help you see people as He does. Maybe, first of all, you need to see yourself as He does. Sick, desperately so, in need of a Savior. Maybe you do all the external things, but your heart is far from God. Maybe he's calling you to himself today. Maybe there's a person here today that you're, you're, you're more like Matthew or Mary Magdalene or the woman taken in adultery than you are a Pharisee. You know you're a sinner. But you love your sin. And you need someone to call you out of that and say, go and sin no more. And the Holy Spirit today is calling all types of people. The moral and the immoral people that the world would say are good and those that the world would say are unsalvageable. With man it is impossible. With God all things are possible. And I can say with all confidence no matter what, what or any of those categories you fall into if you will humble yourself before God and call upon His name He will hear you and He will forgive you. And He will save you. And He will fill you with the new wine of the Holy Spirit. And He'll give you a new heart. Because that old heart is like that old wine skin. It's hard and crusty and immalleable. The scripture says what God wants to do is do radical heart surgery on us. To open us up spiritually speaking and take out that heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. What about you? Will you receive Him by faith today? incompatibility, the condition of two things being so different in nature as to be incapable of coexisting. True grace is incompatible with legalism. The gospel is incompatible with salvation by works. Pride is incompatible with humility. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. And we've seen very clearly today that 
what Jesus came to do was something brand new. He didn't come to be another prophet in a series of prophets. He didn't come to be a guru to be studied about in history books. He is the Lord of glory who left heaven, poured himself out and took on human flesh to live a perfect life, to go to the cross and be that once for all atoning sacrifice for sin. And he doesn't call us to reform. He doesn't call us to self-improvement. He calls us to regeneration. He calls dead men and women to life. So Father, I pray you disabuse any person in this room of any notion that they can simply add Jesus to their own philosophy. Lord, show us that we must divest of anything that would compete for the affection that belong only to Jesus and that would put our faith and trust in Christ alone. And Father, we know that when a person does that, you hear them, you forgive them, and you save them. Lord, we pray that would be the order of the day today. And we pray it in His name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.